You are listening to the Prepared Warrior Podcast, where law enforcement and military trainers discuss cutting-edge training, tactics, and technology. Here is your host, John Wilson. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 9 of the Prepared Warrior. I'm John Wilson. Our guest for this episode is Arno Lipisar. I like to start every episode with a quote. This one is from John Steinbach, who said, The sword is more important than the shield, and skill is more important than either. The final weapon is the brain. All else is supplemental. I'd like to welcome our guest onto the program, Arno Lipisar. He's a recently retired trooper from the New York State Police, with his most recent assignment being the New York State Police Academy as an academy training officer. He had been a trooper for over 23 years. He was an instructor assigned to numerous subjects, mostly related to firearms, active shooter, and reality-based areas of training. He was certified a master instructor by the Municipal Police Training Council in June of 2017 and has actively trained other troopers to become instructors as well. Starting in 2003, he taught firearms as a range instructor. He was a road trooper for 18 years, assigned to all aspects of police work, including crime investigation, contaminated crime scene, emergency response team, and traffic enforcement. Arno is also the only trooper in the history of the state of New York State Police to be a two-time Brummer Award recipient, their highest award for heroism. And he is currently the Director of Sales and Marketing for Smart Firearms. Thank you so much for coming on, Arno. I appreciate you having me. Now, I guess first, let's get a little background on you. What was it that first got you interested in policing? Uh, to be honest, I ever since the days of watching Chips on TV, oh, I, no I was a young kid and... Uh, you know, I'd watch, of course, everything, Dukes of Hazard and things. But when Chips came on, I don't know, something called to me about the the uh, patrolling, looking for trouble, teamwork, um, protecting people. And I just always ended up uh, deciding to angle my life towards uh, law enforcement. Now, when you first started, was it uh, a little different than the TV show? Or <laughs> It uh, definitely was. So, uh, you know, TV leaves... Uh, Leaves a good taste when it's on TV, but in real life, obviously, I uh, you learn real quick that uh, what happens in real life is a lot. Uh, it's different. It's scarier some days. It's uh, nastier. Um, you learn people aren't as good as you wish they were. You know, it never always has a happy ending at the end. So, uh, you know, I got a wake up call pretty quickly over the years. Now, you were a, a New York State uh, trooper. Um, what were some of the significant challenges uh, that were specific to that area of the world? Well, and the New York State Police is kind of a uh, unique agency because uh, everyone thinks of New York as New York City. Right. And uh, New York City is a very small area of uh, New York State. Uh, New York State Police really provides uh, police service to areas that maybe don't have their own police service. So uh, I was mostly a rural trooper. Um, I worked a lot of farmlands. Um, I had multiple towns. So there was only anywhere between two and four of us on a shift uh, covering anywhere from eight to 12 towns. Um, and so when there was only two of you working all those towns, you really had to rely on yourself. Uh, unlike different areas of the country where your backup is 30 seconds away, my backup was maybe 20 minutes away. So you had to learn to... I learned to talk more than I did to uh, act. Um, I, I learned to uh, 
be able to make friends with people, to have them respect you and talk to people longer, um, you could actually get a lot more uh, action that you wanted instead of uh, what you see on TV and and sometimes even in the bigger cities. When you when you have twelve guys backing you up, then you know you have a you have a lot of bravery. But when you're by yourself and you have three or four guys that you're trying to handle, you have to use your brains more than your brawn. So, so uh, so you mean uh, I guess. You have to talk your way out of a situation. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. Um, you, you, and that's not something that was taught when I went through the academy. Um, you know, we, we did a lot of book work. We did a lot of classroom work, a lot of tests. But mm-hmm. the actual practice in learning how to talk to people, and uh, that, that just wasn't taught when I went through the academy. Is that something that um, is taught more now as far as the uh, the social aspect where where people might not realize that it, um, so much of it is based on interactions and, and, and trying to understand what's going on, understand other people? It is. Um, our agency specifically went with an adult-based learning program uh, years in after I had already uh, moved on and onto the road. So instead of just classroom, they, they do some classroom, and then they do practical, uh, more reality-based training to um, do fake scenarios and different things. And, you know, some of the early scenarios are very, very simple. And a lot of times it is just talking to somebody, getting to learn how to ask questions, because a lot of the different generations now haven't had a lot of personal communications. Um, they do with text messaging and social media. But um, I always tell my recruits at the academy, um, that the best recruits right now when they come in the door are bartenders and school teachers. If uh, they had to talk in front of the public or with the public, they're usually very good communicators and can, especially bartenders, they can talk themselves out of trouble <laughs> pretty easily. Yeah, I guess that, that's an interesting aspect of new, um, you know, new police um, is people being used to communicate by writing things out or text messages or instant messaging, but um, you can't do that as a police officer most of the time, right? No. Yeah. I mean, because besides just what they're saying to you, which, you know, social media and texting is fine, you know what they're saying, but you don't know the context, you don't know their emotional state, you don't know uh, any sort of indicators or cues. So when you're actually physically talking to somebody, you're doing more than just saying words to them. You're, you're observing, you're um, reacting to different things that they say and, and how they say them, not just what they say. Yeah, so definitely learning learning social cues uh, might be something people are a little behind on these days, eh? I, I think so. I, yeah. I do. So how did you uh, transition into uh, getting involved with training and firearms training? Um, I had about eight years uh, patrol work, and uh, a good friend of mine, he, uh, he was a firearms instructor, but he was advancing. He was moving on to become an investigator, and he recommended me for the position. Um, I didn't want to do it at the time. I... My whole life, all I wanted to be was a road trooper and fight crime. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, that's that's stuff for guys that don't want to be on the road. And uh, But he convinced me into it, and uh, I'll tell you, it was the best move I ever made. Um, I went to teach at the academy, and I saw a lot of flustered, scared people that didn't never handled a gun before, didn't know how to shoot. I was able to teach them how to shoot. I was teaching them... Uh, confidence and to see how they advanced over the three weeks of firearms training from beginning to end i uh i realized that uh i found a lot of self-satisfaction in in that type of work so um not that i did it full-time but you know it was i looked forward to my two or three weeks at the academy every six months or so that i'd go to teach 
Did you feel like you learned a lot uh, doing that? I did. I did. Um, because, you know, what you learn in the academy, you're always under stress. But when you become an instructor, you get to learn from other instructors as they're teaching, but you're not under stress to learn. You've already, quote unquote, learned it at some point, but now you're refining what you've learned. So, um, and from there, you know, teaching firearms, I ended up eventually becoming a academic instructor also, and uh, which I had never done before. And uh, I didn't know if I was qualified for, but you learn, you learn from previous instructors and then you, uh, you know, try to master your art and then you pass on your knowledge to the next instructors. So it was a, it was a pretty nice career to, uh, and that's the way I ended my career at the state police was uh, finishing up at the academy and trying to pass my knowledge on to somebody else. So, um, what specifically as an academic instructor, is that still police related or is that general knowledge? It is. It's, um, it's police related. So I, I taught a lot of the firearms sections of law. Um, New York state especially is a very, uh, um, let's say restricted state as far as firearms laws go. So, uh, the laws were changing very quickly. And so because of those quick changes, the academics had to be changed quickly as far as to keep up with the law. So the, Fresh batch troopers going on the road knew what was illegal, what wasn't illegal, and uh, what they could do, what they couldn't do. And uh, so I found that to be very challenging, you know, besides, you know, teaching the regular firearms and active shooter training that I did and and other types of reality-based training. But then to get actually into the books, I didn't think I'd enjoy that. But um, that's where a lot of them were also struggling was just uh, because they they were professional college students, some of them. Um, some of them had master's degree, but it was in something that was totally different because with what we taught them, we had to, we taught them the law, but then they had to actually perform uh, that law in a scenario as far as knowing what charges to bring up, what was illegal, what wasn't. So you know, not a, they didn't always get tested on paper. They got tested in practical exercises too. Okay. So, I mean, I was thinking it was a very, you know, uh, book-heavy, not glamorous type of way of learning, <laughs> but you still have to put it into the the physical practice and then and then i guess after the scenario you you go over what the actual charges are and what was correct. legal and what was illegal correct yeah. Oh, yeah they have to know what the charges were they have to uh, know if something is illegal what the process is like if they're if we were teaching them about search warrants when when they could enter a house or when they couldn't enter a house so there was a lot of uh a lot of things they had to learn, but uh, it wasn't all book work. It was maybe two or three days of good, strong book work and, and theory, and then uh, usually two days of practical exercises. So as someone who has given firearms training for years, um, how would you say the training has changed or evolved? And uh, I guess also the laws have changed too, right? They have. I mean, the way firearms training has progressed, I, I think, is fantastic. From what I've seen um, from where I go a lot, the... Uh, you know, when we trained, I hate to say it, but it was almost like they were training us to be Olympic shooters. You know, get your perfect breathing stance, grip, sight alignment, trigger control, you know, gently squeeze the trigger. Mm -hmm. And and that still comes into play in the beginning when you're first getting used to a firearm. But at some point, we have to teach more combat firearms and uh, survival. And, and I found that our program, what we do there now, is greatly advanced. Now, it's it's all about getting that... Uh, pistol drawn out, getting on target, you know, shooting, and not necessarily worrying about um, getting 
perfect dead center, you know, in your 10 ring, but, you know, let's, let's get it on target and stop the threat. So I, I, I find it's really progressing to what it should be now. So is that something you wish um, when you were, I guess, a f- first a trooper had, had been uh, done differently? Or is there, there anything um, that you would wish you had known when you had first started? You know, I, I was lucky. I, I did not know what to expect when I went to the academy except from watching maybe like Police Academy, which, trust me, there's nothing even similar <laughs> to Police Academy movie. Although it's the funniest movie. Should, everyone should watch it. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know... I was lucky when I went on the road that I was uh, assigned to two very um, effective and very uh, uh, good instructors, very thorough. So what I didn't learn in the academy, I learned very quickly under their tutelage. Um, and then you know the station that I worked at was a very busy station. We were a very active station. Um, we were on the Canadian border, um, whereas a a lot of smuggling that goes on there. So we were thrust right into a lot of uh, dangerous situations quickly. So, you know, I was corrected very quickly on many things that I had done wrong. Um, I, I wish I would have known, you know, that then. I maybe could have taken some more courses on my own. But now I, I do feel that uh, troopers coming out on the road today, I think with their firearms and their uh, reality base active shooter training, I, I think my gosh, they're light years ahead of where I was when I walked out of that academy. What do you see as uh, some of the most important elements of uh, reality-based training that people do today? I think that it's very important to see how somebody acts under stress. And, you know, some people, a written test is stress, and that's fine. So we have standards. If they pass, they pass. If they fail, they fail. Um, if that's their stress and they can't handle that stress, that's great. But with reality-based training, we also need to know how they act under stress. So by getting them into a situation, we if we can create it to the point where it's stressing them enough, and we usually can do that pretty simply with a little bit of planning, um, I've seen meltdowns. I, I've seen people that, after a scenario, have decided that this really isn't the career for them and to me, it's so important to f- see that in the academy, in a training environment, before we get them on the road with real people, with real weapons, with real grudges, um, with real things that can go bad. Um, the public can get hurt. Um, I think it's just important to do that at the academy level first before we put them into a real environment. Not to say that we're going to weed out everybody that needs to be, but at least we're we're giving them a fair chance to come to that self-realization too that maybe this isn't the career for them or maybe it is um, i've seen some struggle with book work but then put them in a reality-based environment where they have to apply their knowledge and they're rock stars they're, they're the best so uh, sometimes it's confidence boost that they need also so it, it goes both ways for sure yeah I, I could see someone just having the opportunity to put something into practice might be what gives them the confidence. Right. And we all learn differently. Some people can read something and understand it immediately. Me, I learn from my mistakes. Um, I've, uh, I've been through the stress vest instructor course. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I was probably shocked a good hundred times that week between the shock knife and the stress vest. And, um, I have to say, you know, it's a humbling experience, but you do learn. I learned that way. Um, I learned that I didn't want to get shot. And so, <laughs> You know, I, I learned how to do things uh, a little bit better. And, you know, I've been a trooper for 23 years, but 
I don't care how good you are, you can always learn something um, every single time you do some sort of training. So um, you don't know how you're going to act until you're there. And if we can recreate that, fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> you mentioned some specific things, but um, what are some specific elements of reality-based training like that that you see heightened stress the most uh, or, or kind of might make that person decide one way or the other whether it's for them? Um, I see a lot of people when they can't come up with different options. Um, I don't like situations where there's only one solution because in real life, if you and I were to go through something, we're going to handle it differently. We're going to probably come to the same outcome, but maybe you'll see one way to do something where I'll see a different way to do something. And as long as we do it safely and we do it within the rules, then that's a wonderful thing. Um, that's what makes everybody individuals. So, you know, I, I'm six foot tall. If I go into a situation and I need to use my height and my size and my voice to control the situation, that's fantastic. But if I see a smaller, uh, younger person who maybe doesn't have the size to their advantage or the the dominance that they might physically need in a situation, but maybe they can sweet talk somebody and, and shuck and jive with them a little bit or talk about sports and find something else that's involved. And, you know, as role players, that's important for us to see different techniques also that um, our students are using to get to the finish line of successfully completing the scenario, whether it is to de-escalate it, to arrest somebody. Um, so that's that's where I find with reality-based training is one plus one doesn't always equal two. You know, it does, but we might just have to subtract two, add three plus one, and we get there eventually. But uh, that's where I've really liked reality-based training is there's multiple solutions to one answer. Do you think that's a good uh, uh, space for people to kind of figure out what their strengths might be in a in a certain situation absolutely absolutely it's uh they need that um if they haven't been there then they they're not even sure about themselves a lot of people when they start a career in police work they've never done police work before it's it's sure we get some transplants from other agencies but a lot of times they're straight out of college or doing some side job until they can get into uh, one of our academies so to uh to actually be able to see that they can do it and then to you know for you know some seasoned officers to say hey good job you know i liked how you did that um i think they need that you know because uh if you're just yelling at them all the time and, and scolding them for things, then you're not building them up. You know, That might happen at the beginning of the academy, but when they start doing things right, then they have to be recognized for that because uh, you need that confidence on the road. Now, active shooter training is becoming more of a focus um, with it just being more prevalent in the world. Um, what should trainers know when conducting uh, this type of training? You know, more training is better. I mean, I know that training takes up a lot of time from people off on the road. But we all have children. Um, we all go to public places. We uh, Our family is out there. And to me, we have to be prepared. It, it's unfortunate. I wish we never had an active shooter situation ever again in this world. But the fact is it's going to happen. So... A lot of these smaller agencies and bigger agencies have learned that uh, it can happen at any time. 
So why not get everybody on the same page and, and let's get some good training going. Um, let's work together with different agencies and uh, I just want them to get more time um, to do that because it really is, a, it's, it's not quite like driving. Driving, we do it every day. We get in the car, we put in the drive, we turn the wheel and hit the gas and go. But with active shooter training, it, I guess my most humbling experience, I'll tell you, and uh, I went to go play paintball once with a bunch of college kids. And here I am, the big bad trooper, thinking, ah, I'm U.S. Army uh, prior. Um, now I'm trooper. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe the woods with these kids. No problem. They're all college kids. No problem. I got taken out the first five rounds of paintball. I was one of the first ones taken out each and every time um, because I hadn't done it in a long time. And then I all of a sudden, okay, slow down here, speed up here. All right, get a better sight picture, get get better shot, stop spraying prey. Um, by the end of the day, I was doing really, really well. I won't say I was the best, but I wasn't getting taken out in the first five seconds either. So... Um, and it's the same in real life. I think that uh, the more practice we get, the better we are preparing everybody. And uh, and we're finding not only just that, you know, who's good leaders and who aren't, but, you know, is our equipment up to par? Is our communications up to par? I mean, one of the things our agency learned was our portable radios suck in most buildings and with brick and, you know, cement, cinder block walls and you know, they started upgrading some of their communication systems with uh, repeaters in the cars and things like that. But they wouldn't have known that if they wouldn't have run these exercises in all different types of locations and, uh, you know, practice what they preach. So, uh, yeah, I think that's important. So it's not just uh, what to do in that situation, but also um, it, are we not going to have some kind of communication failure or, or can we actually do what we were planning to do um, you don't know that until you practice it at least a few times. Exactly, exactly. And I, I also think it's important to practice in places where we think we might actually have to respond to someday. Um, you know, if you have a big mall in your town and they're closed one day, what a better place because that might be the one place where you might have a situation. Um, you know, I love training areas, you know, but a lot of times our buildings were abandoned old buildings that somebody let us use before they tore them down. And, uh, you know, and any training is better than no training, but it still has to be as realistic as possible. But uh, I like getting into the realistic environments of where we might actually have to respond. That's why I think it's important to train in the schools where we may have to respond to the malls, things like that. For active shooter training, is there a solid... I guess, course or, or like way to do the training, or do you think it's still in its like uh, development stage? I think there's a lot of um, great ideas that are coming out. I think they're still being developed. Um, I know that uh, different agencies have done the alert training. Um, I haven't been through that. Um, I know New York State has a, a Homeland Security Training Center in Oriskany, New York, where they, they do a lot of uh, training for all the New York State Police agencies. I, I'm not, I'm sorry, not New York State Police, but New York State agencies. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to get on the same page. But then you go to other states, and I, I talk to people in other states, and they're in the infancy stage still. Or they're way, way advanced, you know, because maybe they had a strong military uh, background in their upper echelon where they brought something different into training that maybe 
another agency didn't have because they didn't have that experience. Um, and some of it doesn't always work in civilian, from military to civilian, civilian to military. So I, I still think um, we're still pretty new in this type of training mm-hmm. in general. Now, uh, I want to ask you about something, you know, I read in your bio, you know, you've won, uh, twice won an award for heroism uh, known as the the Brummer Award. Um, would you be able to tell us uh, a bit about this, like what, what this award is for, and, and I guess maybe what happened on one of those incidents? Um, sure. It, it's the highest award that the New York State Police gives for uh, you know, heroism. It's uh, chosen by a civilian panel along with one officer, um, I was very blessed to um, be the recipient of that award twice in my career, both early on. Um, One was within my first year and a half of um, being on the road, and the second one was about three years after that. And, um, you know, and and I want to say I I appreciate being recognized and and I'm honored, but people do things every single day, which... Probably now I've put mine to shame from what, uh, you know, the level is now. The uh, the world has changed a lot. But no, one of the ones was a uh, subject had uh, had gotten into a fight with his girlfriend, had beat her up pretty bad. Um, I went to arrest him along with a local police officer there. And uh, as we were going to arrest him, he lit the house on fire that he was in wow. and ran back inside. I was a volunteer fireman also at the time, so the fire department happened to be very close by. I suited up with a air pack and respirator and bunker gear and led the firemen in. And um, I found him on the second floor of the, the house. He had stopped breathing and uh, was succumbed by uh, the smoke there. We brought him outside, and the rescue squad showed up and was able to resuscitate him. And uh, he uh, he survived, so um, to be arrested. But, you know, it was still... Uh, you know, it, it was something that uh, we don't normally suit up in fireman's gear and go into burning buildings after our suspects, but, uh, you know, it had to be done. And uh, the second incident uh, was a woman that had lost control of her car on a uh, sandy curve um, in uh, November and driven into the Salmon River, which is uh, in upstate New York, and uh, she went uh, underwater Um Another trooper and I pulled up at about the same time, and uh, we both dove in and tried to save her. Um, unfortunately, the water was about 37 degrees. That uh, We made many, many attempts, but it just got to the point we couldn't um, do it anymore. The hypothermia was setting in, and uh, we had a retired scuba diver from the state police actually um, contacted down the road, and he came with his scuba gear and ended up able to get her out. But uh, unfortunately, she had uh, passed away by that point, so... We unfortunately did not save her on that one, but um, they recognized that, uh, you know, the attempt that was uh, what they were impressed with. So they uh, awarded us both the uh, Brummer Award for that also. Right. It seems like yeah, those are both incidents where, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily be recommended or, or people wouldn't know to do what you guys did in that situation. Is that is that kind of the uh, the idea behind um you know being recognized there it is it's it's above and beyond the call of duty they they look for um mm-hmm. we recently had a trooper who uh, there was a child caught uh, on a dam he had 
walked out there at some point and froze and uh, the water was rushing really bad through this dam and this trooper walked out on that ledge also and uh, was able to hold that uh, child there until the fire department was able to come and help rescue him and you know that's not something we get to train to do and uh, so I think uh, in that situation again it was something that is not in the normal course of duty it's uh it's it's something that you know they don't give us a playbook on everything that we have to do sometimes you just have to figure it out and do something yeah you know? it's it's such a i mean an un, unscripted day at work right you know anything can be as slow or as as crazy you know i'm i'm sure there are times where you're you're in a rural area and there's and you're just you're like waiting waiting for someone to drive 10 kilometers or miles over True. the speed limit right is that... some days i probably should have been arrested for grand larceny because i didn't <laughs> do much of anything some days but like i always said we don't get paid for what we do we get paid for what we might have to do and uh, right. some days you go in and you, you want nothing more than to have a quiet day have a cup of coffee and uh, yeah. maybe write a couple tickets but uh, and then all hell breaks loose and you finish your day maybe four or five hours after your shift and get home and you're like what the heck just happened today so it's uh that's what i liked about the job was you never knew what you were going to do each and every day now i was wondering if you could tell us about um uh kind of a solutions uh, you were coming up with reality-based training at at one point i read you you noticed a deficiency with kind of the red guns you were using and uh, and you kind of came up with a different solution for the rbt training can you tell us about that yeah, um, we'd always had an issue with red gun, or at least I had an issue with red gun training when uh, I got to the academy, and, and all the instructors agreed. It was one of those things where the red guns are great for working the mats and working weapon retention and uh, you know different things like that, but the problem is they don't have an active trigger. And without an active trigger, you have to tell your um, students to say bang, bang, and put their fingers on the trigger. And if you think about it, that's like us when we were 10 or 12 years old, bang, bang, you're dead, brush your teeth and go to bed type of thing. And it, I just found that to be just creating training scars. I'd watch recruits um, make the choice to have to shoot somebody, say bang, bang, but never put their finger on the trigger. Or get scared somebody was hiding behind the door, slam their finger on the trigger, but not say bang, bang, and then argue that they didn't shoot because they didn't say bang, bang. It it flustered me greatly to the point where um, I looked for a solution to that uh, issue. Now, we started with some airsoft guns at the academy first, but they just weren't working out. They weren't durable enough to um, survive through you know multiple draws and holstering and getting thrown around during scenarios. So I uh, I ended up finding a, a gun called a Smart Firearm Training Device. Um, it's a company out of uh, Tempe, Arizona, and. Uh, uh, Mike Farrell from the company actually flew to, over to the State Police Academy to show us some of uh, his guns, and I'll tell you, I was I was thoroughly impressed. Um, training gun, it has an active trigger. It makes a gunshot noise when you shoot it. Uh, no projectiles, 100% safe. Holsters into the holsters perfectly, um, and it had actually a really unique feature. It had a trigger intrusion alarm. So if you put your finger on the trigger but you didn't shoot. An alarm goes off and tells you to basically take your finger off the trigger. So it was uh, not only was it a great scenario gun, but it was a great 
gun to teach uh, the fundamentals, keeping your finger indexed uh, until you're ready to fire. So um, I was sold on them pretty quickly. I ended up helping the state police uh, write up some uh, um, paperwork. We ended up, uh, we, we were hoping to buy 10 for the state police. We ended up buying 200 by the time we were done. Oh, wow. um, they actually deployed them throughout the state for active shooter training uh, throughout the state, plus the academy itself. They use it in all scenarios and uh, defensive tactics, taser training, everything, because uh, we needed something that was a dry fire safe solution but also gave us that immediate feedback. And uh, that gun ended up working out to be uh, one of the best things ever. Actually, they're looking at uh, purchasing more pretty soon, I believe. So it's uh, they really believe in it. Um, but we're with Smart Farms now with over 100 agencies, I think, around the country. So then uh, you, you became involved with Smart I Firearms. did. Yeah. I did. It wasn't <laughs> planned. Yeah. Um, but when I retired, I... Uh, you know, I was the liaison for those guns at the academy, and I texted uh, the CEO and let him know, here's your new contact, and I'm going to be retiring pretty soon. And uh, yeah. he called me a half an hour later and uh, offered me uh, a job as his director of sales and marketing, mm-hmm. um, which I uh, I gladly accepted. I, You know, it, it's nice being able to uh, help sell a product that I truly believe in. I, I really think it's the next generation of training gun for academies everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I travel a lot now throughout the country uh, showing these, and I don't get negative feedback. It, they love the gun. They, they see the need. Anybody that's involved in training and has ever said bang, bang before, right. as soon as I mention it, they all nod their head. They're like, yep, I hate doing that. And mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's been a really good relationship. Uh, it's, it's a great company. And, uh, and then through them, I got to know everybody at Setcan, so yeah it's, uh, it's, it's great you make a lot of connections uh but you're still um you know involved in law enforcement kind of community i guess that that you know after being retired right you're still you're still connected and i do and and that's the one thing everybody said i'd miss is the people and you know the best part is i get to still see all the people i still visit the state police academy in new york i I was just in new mexico state police academy the other day i was down in uh, texas for the uh training conference there in Corpus Christi. Um, I was at the IACP show in Florida, so I'm I'm actually expanding my, my base now. I get to meet uh, police officers from different agencies, different states, and I've been through, my gosh, at least 50 academies throughout the country in the last few months, and I really have gotten the gamut of seeing, you know, different agencies and what they're doing with training and with the, you know, some have very limited budgets, some have very big budgets and, right. but it's always neat to see, you know, even the small agencies can do a lot with a small budget if uh, they have the right people that are trying to, you know, make a difference. So it's really nice to see that. Well, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the program, Arno. Is there any other, um, you know, tidbit of advice you'd give to, to trainers or, or even new recruits? Um, uh, since especially since you're seeing so many different types of training and people uh, throughout your career? You know, take advantage of any training you can get. To me, that's... Uh, to me, training is so much fun, and, and some people see it as a task, and they really should see it as an opportunity. If uh, You know, especially, you know, take care of your family. So, you know, be the best, you know, person that you can be on the road and... Uh, you know, take advantage of that training. Have fun with it. Because if you don't have fun with it, if, if you look at it as just a task that you have to do monthly or every 
three or four months, whatever they require you to do. If you're looking at it as a negative, then it's you're going to get negative uh, training out of it. But if you're looking at it as a positive, a day off the road where you get to learn something and you know have fun and uh, and learn something, then you're going to walk away that much better for it. So um, that's all I can say is you know, you know, and then pass your knowledge. Don't don't retire and not pass your knowledge on to somebody else. You know, you're doing yourself a disservice because uh, my my favorite line to my recruits is uh, you know. The only thing you have at the end of your life is your name, so make it a good one. You know, everyone should talk, you know, good things about you when you leave. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't care about a big funeral, but I just <laughs> want people to, to know that I tried my best when I was doing what I did. So, all right, well, thank thank you for passing your knowledge. Then, <laughs> well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity here. This has been the Prepared Warrior Podcast. For more info on our guests or other episodes, check out thepreparedwarrior.com. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the Prepared Warrior Podcast, email j-o-n at thepreparedwarrior.com.